1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman-Newfield. In Political Junkies, From Talk Radio to Twitter... How Alternative Media Hooked Us on Politics and Broke Our Democracy, published by Basic Books in 2020, historian Claire Bond-Potter reveals the roots of today's dysfunction by situating online politics in a longer history of alternative political media. Claire Bond-Potter is a political historian at the New School for Social Research. I'm so glad her book has brought her to our program. Welcome.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: So to get started, uh, could you tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this work?
0: Sure. Um, you know, I was in graduate school back in the 1980s when cultural studies and social history were really sort of entering the field of political history. And I read a dissertation about the FBI's war on crime which became a book, um, and of course the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation in the United States is one of the most powerful police agencies there is. But what I was interested in was how J. Edgar Hoover and also Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was president at the time, used the FBI's war on crime as a kind of public relations campaign for what the New Deal state could do for people. And there was all of this, what was then new media, Uh, radio, uh, talking films, um, detective magazines, you know, all of this popular culture that could get the story out about fighting crime and what the federal government could do for people. And so that's when I began to sort of shift my focus a little bit in political history to think about how politics are communicated to a mass audience. And so when it came time to write Political Junkies and Uh, It was my first commercial book contract. We were in the middle of the Donald Trump uh, campaign for president, which Trump ultimately won, which was a shock to everybody. And so the big question on my mind was, how did new media contribute to this political outcome? right? And of course, our new media in 2016 was uh, Twitter and Facebook and um, Instagram was just coming up. So there were all kinds of ways, not just for political candidates to communicate with people, but for people to communicate with each other. Now, my editor at the Times, a guy named Brian Distelberg, who also has a PhD in history, said to me, No one wants to read another book about Donald Trump. That was the one thing he was wrong about. There have been over 100 books about Donald Trump since I signed that contract. But what he was right about is he said people want a longer history. Take it way back. So I actually took it back to kind of where I left off with War on Crime, which was the period right after World War II. And looking at what happens to journalism when it's possible for people to publish their own newsletters. And we can talk about that later, but I I start with a guy named Izzy Stone, who gets fired from PM newspaper. It's a liberal left newspaper in New York. And Izzy can't get hired because he's, you know, got all these communist connections. He's done nothing but work for progressive media all of his life. And he's kind of desperate for money. And so he does what would be familiar to anyone today who's ever subscribed to a Substack. He decides to publish his own newsletter that he will edit himself. It will be four pages. He will dig into one topic really, really deeply and he will offer it to readers for $5 a year. And he, he gets all these mailing lists and sort of sends out this plea, you know, subscribe to my newsletter for $5 a year. And people do it. Eleanor Roosevelt does it. Marilyn Monroe does it. Um, you know, there are all these celebrities. Marilyn Monroe buys a subscription for every person in Congress to Izzy Stone's newsletter. <laughs> So, you know, this is the substack of its moment. And, you know, for $5 a year, and Izzy ends up the first year making more money than he ever made uh, every year as a journalist, right? And so, what it allows him to do is pioneer this new kind of independent journalism that can be distributed to people who want it. And it doesn't have to go through corporate overlords.
1: Right. Wow. Uh that's so interesting. We'll definitely uh get back to Izzy Stone uh shortly. Um could you uh tell us a where of the term political junkies uh uh political junkie originates and what does it refer to?
0: Okay, so first of all, marketing, yay marketing. If you're ever writing a book for a commercial press, you send it in with a title you've chosen that you've lived with for three years and marketing says, uh-uh, no, something else. But, um, but marketing really did a good job um, on this one because the term political junkies is invented in 1972 by a guy named Hunter S. Thompson, who is the father of gonzo journalism in the United States. He wrote books like uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Um, And, you know, he took a lot of drugs. He drank a lot. He shot weapons. He was kind of this libertarian wacko. And he gets hired by Rolling Stone to write about the 1972 political campaign. And he follows McGovern around the country. And at a certain point, George McGovern, who was um, the the liberal candidate um, who was opposing Nixon and who lost miserably um, to Nixon. Um, And now we know that Richard M. Nixon cheated. We know that because of Watergate. But but so. What Thompson does, and Thompson was very cynical about politics when he signed on to follow the McGovern campaign, he was also one of these crazy writers where he had this horrible writer's block, and he would sit down at 11 o'clock at night when his deadline was midnight, and he would just bang out stuff um, in this sort of stream of consciousness. And at a certain point, he's in one of these writing binges, and he says, you know, I've gotten hooked on politics. I am a junkie for politics. Politics is better than any drug I have ever taken. And so this phrase, and you can really see it if you do a Google Ngram on it, this phrase emerges in 1972 with Thompson. It comes out in Rolling Stone, which is, you know, this rock and roll magazine that also does politics and culture. And then people adopt it. And it just sort of slides into the political commentariat. You see people like Robin McNeil, who's also in the book and was the founder, one of the co-founders of the PBS NewsHour. Um, Robin McNeil is using it. You know, when he, when the PBS NewsHour is founded, this is chapter three of the book, um, McNeil says, this show is not for political junkies. This is for very serious people, right? So the idea of the political junkie becomes established as this person who can't let go of politics who is addicted to it in some deep emotional way and that of course resonated very much to where the book ends up which is the Donald Trump campaign and our current moment, where there are people who can't get off social media. And every time they see another political tweet or, or something posted on Facebook, there's a little jolt of endorphins that goes to their brain. Um, and they're kind of sucked back down the rabbit hole.
1: Right. And your book uh, really focuses on the story of alternative media uh, in the modern um, you know, period. Uh, what exactly do you mean by alternative media? What does that okay. refer to?
0: Yeah. So so today we talk about legacy media and new media. Um, And by legacy media, we generally mean radio, television, um, newspapers and new media is more everything that's happening on the Internet. You might want to add cable television to that as a kind of new media because it's a different version of television, really, um, that that was actually born to interact with the internet in the the 1990s. Um, But what I mean by alternative media is media that is actually controlled as much by its producers as it is by any corporate entity. So alternative media is in its very nature anti-corporate, if not in its origins, then in its presentation. So if you take something like Facebook, for example, huge corporation, okay, multi-billion dollar. I think they hit three billion users the other day. Um, really, which is more users than all of the other companies combined. So it is a huge corporation. But what Facebook sells itself as is a way for you to control the news. You become a news producer. You become a news distributor, um, and. St- Things like Substack and the other newsletter companies are a more sophisticated version of that. TikTok is a more sophisticated version of that. It's not just that you're the distributor and the producer, but you're the artist, you're the creator, and so on. And so, non alternative media, there's always a kind of corporate control about what is being put out there in the atmosphere, it, it, it's edited. Um, There are lawyers involved, right? So there's a corporate interest in what is published. Um, And then, you know, there are sort of odd hybrids. I mean, something like Fox, for example, is a corporate media, but with an alternative media style, right? So you've got people like uh, broadcaster Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram and all of those super pundits. On Fox News, that are really sort of presenting themselves as if they were on TikTok, even though they're a big corporate entity. So, so alternative media is explicitly anti-corporate, is explicitly individualist, and it presumes that the uh, creator has control over the content.
1: Right. And you mentioned already uh, uh, I.F. Stone, Isidore uh, uh, Stone, um, and his uh, weekly, um, the I.F. Stone weekly uh, that he produced. What role did the weekly play in American politics?
0: Well, I.F. Stone's weekly was incredibly important in American politics. First of all, as I said, Stone himself was a very prestigious journalist on the left and so he was well known by the time he did this he's kind of like um you know the Matt Taibbi of the left or something like that you know or the Barry Weiss of the left um you know he and those are those are all substackers people who had a reputation before they went to substack Right? And so that's what Stone is. He has, um, he's published some books on Korea, on Palestine, and so on. So he's got all of these mailing lists. Um, And he becomes important, first of all, because he already has an established audience that wants to hear from him. Right. People on the left. And when he gets what we would say today is deplatformed by the newspaper industry, even the nation won't hire him because he's you know, he won't behave. Right. He won't do what they say he's supposed to do. So um, so the moment he's deplatformed, all of these people are really eager to hear from him. But he's offering something beyond An opinion on the left. He's offering deep reporting that doesn't get into newspapers. Um, And sorry, a second. He's offering deep reporting that doesn't get into newspapers. Um, So that four pages is full of information that he researches in public documents. He digs into the congressional record. So he's getting into all sorts of publicly available documents that most readers are never going to see. And he synthesizes them and presents what he calls the unvarnished truth about American politics. Why is this important? It's important for two reasons. One is a whole generation of young journalists begins to read Izzy Stone. Um, People like Cy Hirsch, um, who is now an investigative journalist, who has never quite fit in in the journalism world and has broken all kinds of important stories. Um, People like Jack Newfield, who becomes a big editor at the Village Voice, an alternative newspaper in New York City. All these young journalists read him and say, I don't want to be one of those stale, boring suits at the New York Times. I want to get out there and have adventures. I want to publish the truth. I want to dig into what, what the United States is doing during the Cold War. Um, and then when Izzy says at a certain point, you know, the United States is getting into the war in Vietnam, and he says this is really important, and it's it's around the time of the Gulf of Tonkin incident, And he says, I'm going to report on this looming war in Vietnam all year. And that's what I'm going to focus on because you as American citizens need to know about it. He's the first person who says, guess what? The Gulf of Tonkin incident is a lie. And, you know, so he is printing stories that the legacy media...
1: Yeah, Maybe you could just briefly describe what the Gulf of Tonkin incident was oh, and okay. how it turned out to be a lie, just, just for sure. listeners who are not familiar.
0: So the Gulf of Tonkin incident, it's during Lyndon Johnson's administration, President Lyndon Johnson. And an American warship is in the Gulf of Tonkin and claims to have been fired upon by a North Vietnamese um, boat. And... Then the United States uses this as a pretext to ramp up the war in Vietnam. It turns out that, yes, the American ship was in the Gulf of Tonkin, but they fired on the North Vietnamese boat first. Right. And so it was not, as you know, Johnson said, an unprovoked attack. And of course, when presidents say unprovoked attack, they're always, you know, conjuring um, Pearl Harbor, you know, the beginning of World War II and, you know, going to war in this in this self-justifying way. You know, that happened around 9-11, too. Right. So when Izzy Stone digs into the documents, publicly available documents that other journalists could have looked at, what he sees is that the government is lying. Um, and and Stone believed that governments always lied right? And I think there's a fair amount of evidence to back that up. You know, governments will say the things they need to do to pursue the policies that they think are right. Um, and so, so his skepticism of government really stood in contrast to, um, you know, the journalism establishment of the time. I mean, we really don't see the New York Times and the Washington Post taking a stand against government lies until Watergate um, or, you know, actually a little before that, the, the Pentagon Papers, um, and, which was, of course, a group of documents about the Vietnam War that were taken out of the Rand Corporation by Daniel Ellsberg, you know, and the New York Times says, we will publish them. We will put them on the front page of the New York Times. but But it's really not until the early 70s that you see newspapers doing what they do today, which is to make it their task to investigate what government is doing. Izzy Stone starts that.
1: Right. And so we have Izzy Stone on the left uh, during this period. Were there right wing counterparts to Stone's newsletter?
0: Yeah, absolutely. There were. Um, So chapter two is about a guy named Paul Wyrick, um, who was a, who was born and raised in Wisconsin, the home of, uh, Senator Joe McCarthy, who, you know, was really a key player in the Red Scare, um, of the 1950s. Um, and, you know, McCarthyism has become a kind of code word for right wing backlash against the left and witch hunts against the left. Um, and so uh, Wyrick, um, loved Joe McCarthy. Joe McCarthy was his hero. And so w- Wyrick became um, this um, organizer in the Young Republicans. He He worked for Barry Goldwater. Um, and it's in the Barry Goldwater campaign that you see various elements of the right coming together to figure out how they can push the Republican Party to the right. And Wyrick gets together with a guy named Richard Vigery, um, who becomes the king of mailing lists. Richard Vigery, uh who's from Texas, um, he works in public relations, and he figures out that if you have a mailing list of people who voted for Barry Goldwater – you have the core of a new Republican Party. And he literally goes into the Federal Election Commission a um, couple days after Barry Goldwater loses the election in 1964 in a landslide. I mean, it's horrible. He only wins like three states, including his own. And Vigory goes in, and of course, we have no Xerox machines at that point, but he goes in and he gets a list of the donors. To Barry Goldwater, and he sits there all day writing them out by hand until his hand cramps up so badly that he can't write anymore. And he gets over 12,000 names. He goes back to his office and then he does something that no one has done before, which is to put them on computer tapes. And there's these great pictures of Richard Viguerie standing in front of what were then computers, which were these things that were, you know, they were bigger than cars. They were huge. And and they, they worked with magnetic tape. And all he does is collect names of people who are likely to vote for someone on the far right. He and Paul Weirick come together and they fuse the mailing list with the newsletter in order to get information out to right-wing conservatives about the candidates they ought to be supporting. Um, they start think tanks, they start the Heritage Foundation. Um, they start all of these conservative organizations and they're all funded through these mailing lists and newsletters. And so one of the one of the things this teaches us about political media is actually, it's non sectarian It's a series of technologies that people figure out how to repurpose for their own agenda.
1: Right, right. And you mentioned uh, Robert McNeil before. What, uh, tell us about the, the television equivalent that he created, uh, to, uh, the, the equivalent to uh, political newsletters. <laughs>
0: Right. Well, Robert McNeil is a fascinating character. He's still alive and and living on the Upper West Side. And I was so happy that he granted me an interview because he's really one of my heroes. Um, And so Robin worked for um, the BBC. He worked for the Canadian Broadcasting Company. He's Canadian. Um, And then during the Vietnam War, he was working, I believe, at NBC in New York, and there was all this tape coming in from Vietnam, and it showed the ghastly things that were happening. I mean, he would see tape where a soldier would be hit by an explosion and his legs were were blown off, right? I mean, just grisly, horrifying material. And what Robin came to understand was that The world that the news was producing, that the evening news was producing for American citizens was one big lie about the war because they actually cut out the violence that soldiers and the Vietnamese people were experiencing from this war. Um, And so he becomes very disillusioned. He goes to radio and then he and Jim Lehrer um, meet up. Um, in public television, which is, you know, at the end of the 60s, a very, very um, slim network of educational television stations around the country that are linked together with a satellite, right? And so, so they're a network, but they're all these independent stations working together. Then Watergate happens. And Robin and Jim say, you know, This is one of the most important things that has ever happened in American history. And when the army went after Joe McCarthy and Joe McCarthy went after him, after them, back in the 1960s uh, or 1950s, excuse me, um, that was nationally televised and it brought McCarthy down. And it's really important for American citizens to see how their government works at a moment of crisis like this. So they go to this funder, in Texas. And they say, you know, we need a couple million dollars. Here's our proposal (laughs) is we will do gavel to gavel coverage of, um, of the budget hearings. And the funder is like, guys, you know, this is not the story of the day. The story of the day is there is a huge looming energy crisis. And that's what you should be reporting on. And they're like, no, 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 no. No, this is the most important story. And he goes, okay, fine. Here's a couple million dollars. Go do it. And they managed to get all of these different stations which decide on their own programming to cover it and they're very clever about it they go to the New York WNET and they're very liberal and they say oh yes absolutely they go to Boston and the Bostonians are also very liberal they're like oh absolutely so they get four or five of these stations lined up so that even the educational television stations you know in very conservative areas they realize that if people in other parts of the country are getting this news their own viewers are really going to be ticked off if they don't get to see it so everybody signs on and so they do these national broadcasts gavel to gavel and i actually remember as a child um, or young teenager watching these things with a friend of mine it was like all one summer and we would call each other at the end of the day and go over all the testimony and and so on and so forth It it was history in action and it gets massive, massive ratings um and these guys are like broadcasting for you know eight, nine hours a day they 've got people in the halls of Congress collaring people i mean it's basically what we're used to in news coverage today, right, and so they come out of this experience saying there is room for a different kind of broadcast news in this country, an alternative to what exists. And what exists, of course, is a half an hour in the evening in which there's no time. If two minutes is a long story for the evening news, it still is, right? And so they say, what we're going to do is we're going to pick one or two stories and we're going to dig into them in depth. Similar model to Izzy Stone, right? And, and their first advertisement, when they announce the show, which is called the mcneil Lehrer News Hour for years, when they announce it, they say, watch your favorite evening news and then tune in to us to hear an intelligent conversation about one thing, right? And they pick a broadcast hour, which is 6.30, so they're not competing with the national broadcast of the evening news. And so people just sort of seamlessly slide in to this second broadcast. And of course, today, it's an hour. It's still after the evening news. Um, many of us organize our dinner time around it, um, because we have done so for, for decades. But, but it is an alternative, because it says, we want to broadcast the news, but we want to do it better. And we want to do it in depth. And we want it for intelligent people. And this is when You know, Robin McNeil says, this isn't for your average political junkie. This is for people who are intellectuals. Everybody won't watch it. But the people that we make it for will watch it.
1: Right. And what was the new right and how is it developed
0: Okay, so the new right um, is a group of people. I think it's Paul Wyerick who comes up with the term, um, and they come up with this term both to distinguish themselves from garden variety conservatives, but also to conserve to um, uh, distinguish themselves from what was the wacko right of the time, the John Birch society. (laughs) Okay. So, so they want to be more respectable than the John Birch society or, you know, the equivalent of the John Birch society, uh, the Ku Klux Klan. You know, there are all of these right wing extremist movements that they don't want to be associated with. They want to be the respectable right, but they also don't want to be confused with conservatives who they think are really too namby-pamby, who are sort of adhering to certain kinds of cultural changes. For example, um, some of the biggest proponents of birth control in the 1950s and 60s were conservatives. Um, There there were conservatives who were pro-abortion um and so on and wyrick who's a very very conservative catholic and he's so conservative that he joins the greek orthodox church at a certain point because the regular catholic church is starting to give mass in english and he thinks that's just apostasy so he joins the greek orthodox
1: church instead because they're still giving oh, wow. the
0: service in latin right so
1: um the catholic church was too soft
0: (laughs) right exactly so so they they are the sort of early generation of what we would now call culture warriors right and it's from them that um you know and also people like phyllis schlafly um for example who is um an american woman who um achieves her greatest fame by defeating the Equal Rights Amendment, defeating a feminist initiative that would put women's equality in the Constitution. Um, But she too, um, she believes in homeschooling, she believes in um, a very rigid Um, Orthodoxy in the Catholic Church. Um, She believes um, that abortion and birth control are absolutely wrong. She believes that women should stay home, even though she never stays home. Um, She believes that she really doesn't. I mean, she has all these servants um, and and I'm not saying she wasn't involved in her children's lives because she was, but um, but in fact she's traveling around the country all the time doing politics, right? So it's characters like this that craft the idea of something called the New Right that brings these hyper conservative values into mainstream politics from which they were formerly excluded, um, and the New Right, of course, needs new ways of communicating with its audience, new ways of spreading its message, new ways of wooing people who have always thought of themselves as ordinary conservatives, but are now open to actually moving right.
1: Right. And what, what tools do they use, to, new tools, to get their uh, uh, um, uh, uh, socially and politically conservative message out?
0: Well, they use a number of tools. Um, one is radio okay so radio is an old media that kind of gets transformed into a new media um, and there are a couple things that happen with radio after the 1970s one is the creation of um, big networks of radio stations so, um, in the Reagan era, for example, radio is deregulated. used to be people who, and by Reagan era, I mean the 1980s when, when Ronald Reagan was president. Um, and they deregulate. And it, 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 formerly, radio station owners could only own a finite number of radio stations. And more importantly, they could not own newspapers and radio and television stations. That all changes in the 1980s. And so radio becomes part of these media empires. Um, one remnant of that is Clear Channel, um, for example, um, that can then syndicate shows, right? And again, we have to go back to Paul Wyrick because one of the ways Paul Wyrick got a start was in radio. And he would, he would get in his car and he would go around and he would interview conservative politicians around Wisconsin. And he would take these tapes to, um, to radio stations. And at that point, the law was that you had to give equal coverage to all political perspectives. So radio stations had a dearth. Of conservative voices. So you could just drop these tapes off and they would play them. Um, And so Weirick sort of develops this as a strategy um, in the 70s and 80s, where he starts, for example, making these tapes and mailing them around the country, particularly to college radio stations. Um, We then get video, which... um, Conservative Christian evangelicals develop what they call networks, but they're not really networks. What they are are videotapes that they send around the country to television stations that play them in particular slots. So so these various Christian networks, before they start buying satellites and broadcasting um, more strongly, um, are shipping around these videotapes all over the country to be played um which helped them raise money but also helped them spread a political perspective which is conservative right and all of this really culminates in the emergence of a figure who is absolutely key to the rise of conservatism and that is rush limbaugh rush limbaugh is this sort of tubby unhappy kid from the midwest who goes into radio broadcasting he actually becomes a sports broadcaster first Um, And you can sort of anybody who's listened to Rush Limbaugh, which you can, he's got a big website, even though he's dead, all his stuff is on the internet now. But that sort of staccato style that like hyper dramatic radio style. And at a certain point, Limbaugh shifts from doing sports broadcasting to political commentary. And he is a fabulous success particularly in Southern California where he's living at the time. But then, you know, his broadcasts start going everywhere and he starts inspiring other people. One of the people he inspires is a guy named Andrew Breitbart um, who ultimately starts Breitbart News. Um, But Breitbart and people like Matt Drudge and so on are, of course, taking the Rush Limbaugh style and putting it on something that's new in the nineteen nineties, which is the internet.
1: All right, we're gonna speaking of the internet, uh, who was Harold uh, Howard Reingold and what was his vision for the internet?
0: Okay. Howard Rheingold is an amazing person, still an amazing person. You can find him on Spoutable. You can find him on Mastodon. He's, he's just all over the place. But Howard Rheingold is an early internet theorist. I mean, before there really is an internet the way we recognize it today, Howard Rheingold um, gets involved with something called the well um, which is an internet communi- community that's mostly, you know, people um, networked with each other on the old ARPANET, um, which was the military, the military computer network that ultimately becomes the internet we know today. Um, and Howard Reingold has this vision for the internet, which is that it can be the ultimate democratic space, it's it's a space where everybody can participate anybody can speak to anybody um which of course is now the world we live in and is borderline terrifying at times um but when reingold imagined it he imagined it as sort of like this big coffee house this big national and even international coffee house where people could share their views and talk issues out until they came to consensus Um, that seems ironic today because, of course, what we do is we talk issues out until we are totally enraged at each other and, you know, rushing off to our silos and corners and so on and so forth. But but the world, as Howard Rheingold saw it, could be improved through communication. Reingold imagined, and in fact, this happened um, with early Internet connections, um, putting politics online. Um, allowing citizens of a city to get together at computer terminals in public libraries and not only listen to city council hearings that they could not otherwise attend, but be able to participate in them and contribute to them and talk to each other about initiatives that they would propose. So there is this initial very optimistic moment in which people who are involved in the early internet Think this is going to be the ultimate democracy, um, and this is really before we have the searchable web in 1995, which changes everything. But um, but they believe that the the United States and the world are headed toward um, a brighter future where people can sort out their problems peacefully.
1: Right. And so were was Reingold and, and people, other theorists like him, just wildly uh, naive and overly optimistic? Or was there something about the Internet, the, the, the mechanics of the Internet or something that caused their vision to, to not come to fruition?
0: Right. Well, I would say there are two things that they didn't know. And and I would almost say that they couldn't know it. The one thing which we now know from a historian named Kathleen Ballou, who's written about the white power movement, is actually the first political group that really puts the Internet to work is white power. Okay. In the 1980s, um, they, through gun sales and drug sales and so on, they finance um, purchasing all of these computers and they link them together so that they can communicate with each other across organizations, across time and space, and so on and so forth. Rheingold did not know that at the time. And in fact, we have just known that in the last 10 years. The second thing that Rheingold did not anticipate was the corporatization of the internet. Um, And that was in part because when he was creating these theories, as I said, there's no searchable web, right? The Mozilla browser comes out in 1995. Right? And Reingold is developing these theories in the 1970s and 1980s. Um, but, you know, when the internet becomes corporatized, there is an incentive to bring people onto it for all the wrong reasons. Whereas when Reingold was emerging with these theories, there were people who were on the internet for what We might arguably say, are all the right reasons. How do you improve communication? How does humanity move forward? How do you spread useful ideas that people need? Um, And so, Reingold didn't anticipate not only the corporatization of the internet, but that political consulting companies would latch onto it and use it in a way that they were already using. you know, pamphlets and newsletters and radio.
1: Right. And uh, what was the Drudge Report and what impact did it have on American political culture?
0: So Matt Drudge is one of the most interesting and mysterious characters of the 20th and 21st century. Um, Matt Drudge is um, born out east um, in the in the in a suburb, and he hates school, uh, you know, and he, he's sort of like the kind of person who becomes the typical computer nerd, right? He hates school, um, and but the one thing he likes is newspapers. Um, he becomes a newspaper delivery person, which he's very very bad at because often he'll just like stop and not deliver the newspapers and just sit there and read the newspaper. Right. And so all of his clients were like, where's my damn newspaper, Matt. And he's like, Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. I got too interested in reading it. So Matt doesn't go to college. He, when he graduates from high school, he goes out to Los Angeles and he's got the idea that he wants to go into television, but it's a very, very hazy idea. And he gets, he gets a job at the CBS gift shop. And, and so he, starts wandering around CBS um, in Hollywood at night and going through people's trash cans and so on, just to kind of see what's going on, what series are being developed, who's being hired, who's being fired – And at a certain point, his father, who is just like beside himself, like here's my son working at a gift shop in LA, living in a studio apartment, sitting around in his underwear all day. And the father comes out and says, Matt, you have to get interested in something. And so he drives him to a radio shack and buys him a computer. No kidding. This is like, you know, a desperate father's idea of how to jumpstart his son gets, gets the guy hooked up to the internet. And this is like, again, before the searchable internet, um, you know, it's when we have various companies that are running spaces that people can communicate with each other. in. and Matt starts collecting all this junk from, from wastebaskets and writing a newsletter. And first he just starts sending it to his friends. And this is, you know, when we, have email for the first time right so he's using email as his alternative media and he sends these newsletters to his friends and his friends are like hey I really like this and some of his friends are working in Washington and some of his friends say well you know I could go through the, the waste baskets in the Capitol building too and maybe find some stuff so all of a sudden we see items popping up in in this newsletter which is called the Drudge report um, and it's basically like a right-wing libertarian version of Izzy Stone, but it's on the internet now in email. And, and, you know, so we see, you know, political items and all of a sudden he becomes red in Washington and in Hollywood. So there are all these people signing up for the Drudge Report because it's basically a gossip sheet. Now, what's important about it is sometimes it's right and sometimes it's wrong. Sometimes you pull something out of a trash bag as a basket that hasn't really happened. Right. And so, you know, but people are people are jonesing on it. They really, really like it. And then one day a story comes to him and it's a story that has been spiked by Newsweek about the president, William Jefferson Clinton, having an affair with a White House intern named Monica Lewinsky. And it was actually something that A lot of people knew about in Washington. The story had been around for a while. It had been roaming around Newsweek, which is where this reporter worked. And the reporter finally wrote a story about it and said, you know, we should publish this. And Newsweek waits until the last minute. And then they say, nope, we're not going to do this to the president. We're not going to do it. No one really knows how the story got to Matt Drudge, but it did and drudge puts it on and now he's got you know he's got a website he's not just email now it's a website that anyone can go to that reporters are basically keeping up on their screens all the time to see what's happening what gossip they can latch on to and the story goes boom and suddenly matt drudge becomes a household name suddenly matt drudge becomes someone that other young computer jockeys who are also political junkies say, Hey, I can do that. And of course, one of the people who says that is Andrew Breitbart and, you know, Breitbart had worked for the Huffington post, right. Which is a kind of left-wing version at, of what the Drudge Report is. And Ariana Huffington, you know, who is, you know, was married to Michael Huffington, who was a millionaire politician in California Ariana Huffington and Matt Drudge and Andrew Breitbart are all friends at the beginning. And Breitbart is, you know, basically an intern sitting on the floor of Ariana Huffington's house. Um, and, you know, then Breitbart sort of says, well, I could take everything that I've learned from Ariana Huffington and latch on to everything that Drudge is doing. And I could just start my own publication, which becomes Breitbart News.
1: Wow! Wow, um, how did the Barack Obama presidential campaign benefit from social media?
0: Okay, so that is a great story, and it really starts with one eight hundred numbers, right? Which Jerry Brown is the is the first presidential candidate to use a one eight hundred. Uh, number to raise small donations, right? And actually, the first person to do small donations was presidential candidate George McGovern. Um, And, you know, he sort of says, I'm going to take small donations because I want people to be invested in this campaign. But it doesn't really work until you can get it out on mass media. How do people... how do people get to you, right? And so Jerry Brown would, and this is in the nineteen nineties. He'd be in debates, and then he would just hold up a sign like those, um, you know, people who shill knives and fishing reels and so on 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 late night television. He would just hold up a sign that said one eight hundred got Jerry or you know whatever. <laughs> just dial this number, and you can give money. But what really makes it possible to give money over the internet, right, is in the late 1990s, Congress allows um, credit cards to be used for political donations over the internet. And the John McCain campaign in 2000, it's a presidential campaign. John McCain is running as a maverick, as an outsider for the Republican nomination. He does, of course, lose to George W. Bush. But he is a campaign manager who says, you know, we could do that 1-800 stuff, but we could do it on the internet. And we could have an interactive platform in which people make contact with John McCain on the internet. They can ask him questions. It's very personal. And they can send small donations into this platform. And the McCain campaign does that. And they actually do it Pretty well, given how lousy the technology is. I mean, you know, the video feeds are always freezing and slowing down, and so on. But they do figure out how to connect money, collect money, and there is a political consultant named Joe Trippy, who kind of grew up on computers. Um, you know, loved the news, was a political junkie, um, got involved with computers when he was in college, then got involved with politics during Robert Kennedy's campaign, and he's, he's now a political consultant and he's watching what McCain is doing and saying, I could do this better. Right. And so in 2004, When Howard Dean, um, who at the time was governor of Vermont, decides he's going to run as president as the anti-war candidate. Now the United States is involved in this horrible war in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, It's really going sour. It is not a success. The Bush administration is digging in for the long haul. And Howard Dean says, enough. Um, and, you know, he was a very progressive governor in, in Vermont. Um, he created health care for the entire state of Vermont. He signed off on the first uh, civil unions for gay and lesbian people and so on. So, so Howard Dean has this progressive following around the country. And what Trippy figures out is that there are all of these people talking about Howard Dean in chat rooms around the country. Um, and in particular, this one kind of chat room, which is called meetup.com, in which people meet on the internet initially and then they meet in person. You know, they go to bars, they go to restaurants, they get together to talk about whatever they want to talk about. And Howard Dean is just blowing up on meetup.com. And so Trippy goes to Dean and says, you know, <laughs> If you're really going to make a go of this, you have to have an internet campaign. It has to be the first full-blown internet campaign, and you can latch on to things that are already happening. And so Trippy institutes things like blogs, right? He writes a personal blog, um, and Howard Dean writes a blog. And they, you know, it's as if you're on the inside of the campaign. I mean, I remember reading it at the time, and and Joe Trippi would write something about, oh, here I am in Iowa, and whenever I come to the Iowa caucuses, I always go to this restaurant because they have the best barbecue sandwich, and I eat it for good luck, and you know, and people are just like eating this stuff up. But what they're also doing is they are giving money in heretofore unprecedented amounts, and so what really puts Howard Dean on the map. In late two thousand three and early two thousand four is he is collecting millions and millions and millions of dollars in amounts of five dollar ten dollar, and that there are all these people working on the internet in his on his behalf, so like there's one woman that I talk about in the book who had already hit her max. she'd already given everything she could give personally to Howard Dean, which I think was like two thousand dollars, and she said, "But I can get other people to do it too." and so she turns herself into a bundler, right. And of course, a bundler is somebody who puts together donations for a candidate, right? And so what happens is that your average political junkie through the Internet can become active in politics. Now, Howard Dean loses the nomination um, and actually they squander all of that money very, very quickly. Um, They don't have enough boots on the ground. As it turns out, you can't just do it on the Internet. But Howard Dean becomes chair of the Democratic Party and he becomes chair of the Democratic Party at a moment when a young black senator is saying to himself, you know, maybe maybe it's my turn. Maybe I could do it, too. And so when Obama runs for president, Howard Dean brings those strategies to the National Democratic Party. Um, And by that point, of course, there is also Facebook. Okay, Which launches to the general public in 2006. Now, the people who ran the the Obama campaign would say, "Oh no, 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 it wasn't about Facebook. It was about the organizing. But the fact remains that Chris Hedges, who was one of the founders of Facebook, leaves Facebook and comes to the Obama campaign to do their social media. <laughs> and one of the things he organizes is a Facebook presence for Obama. And it's not just Obama himself and official campaign stuff that go viral, but YouTube is up, Um, Twitter is up. There is someone who becomes known as the quote-unquote Obama girl, and she makes a video. She's this white girl who says, you know— I used to be in love with John Kerry, but now it's just all Obama. And it's this long song and, and music video that's styled on MTV. So again, we see like the alternative media thing of like, it's not only that you're using a new platform, but you're borrowing from established platforms and repurposing them um, for your own for your own purposes. And when Obama wins, people are like, this is this is what we knew the internet could do all along we knew it. We, we could use it to elect the first black president. And, and it's a very heady moment. I mean, for anyone who is living in the United States, or even around the world at the time, when Obama wins that presidency, I mean, I just sat there with tears pouring down my face. And it did seem like a triumph for what social media could do for democracy. And of course, what we didn't know was that eight years later, Donald Trump was going to do the same thing and he was going to do it better and he was going to crush progressives.
1: Right. Well, before we get to Trump, um speaking of uh, Obama and um his connections to 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 uh, uh uh social media and his desire to use um you know these technologies to communicate with um quote unquote ordinary uh uh citizens. Uh what was change.gov and what happened to it?
0: Okay, so change.gov um is this startup that imagines the possibility, of, you know, the petition is is an old um, political tool. I mean, petitions, they go back in the United States to um, 1776. I mean, really, the Declaration of Independence is a kind of petition to the king. Right and petitions um, existed in Europe. You would petition leaders. Um, you know they were mostly used by respectable people, not the hoi polloi, um, who gathered in the streets and yelled a lot and burned torches and so on. But but petitions were an old political tool, and what change does is imagine that you can get petitions of thousands and thousands of people that it is this way of making ordinary people's voices available to the government that the government will have to listen to you if thousands and thousands of voters get together and say we want this thing and that they're doing it in in outside political parties right and you know this is this is one of the things that the internet does i think to politics is create this rift between popular politics on platforms like change.gov and official politics or institutional politics that happen within political parties. Um, And and change um, is a piece of that. What it also is, and moveon.org is another one, that's actually the earliest one, is it's a way of collecting email addresses so it's a way of doing that work that Richard Vigory did way back in 1966 the 64 writing things by, down by hand but people just give you their intimate their email addresses and not only do they give you their email addresses they give you their addresses in relation to a particular cause and so you can say okay here's Claire Potter she signed the petition the petition to um forgive student loans she signed the petition that was pro choice she signed the petition for these other issues now we can just sell her name to planned parenthood we can sell her name to the AARP we can you know and so they're able to sort of collect these email lists with data about all of us slice and dice them and sell them to other people and so the the mailing list is possibly one of the biggest uh, money makers in political media today, um, and these internet platforms that collected our names for genuine democratic purposes are part of it.
1: All right. And okay, now shifting to Trump. Um, uh, So we know that Trump was, you know, constantly tweeting and all this kind of thing. But just how central was alternative media in Trump's victory over Hillary Clinton in uh, 2016?
0: Well, I think we're still figuring that out, right? I mean, I think, you know, you could go to any number of researchers, for example, and ask them, were there really Russian agents and bad actors and bots and so on? And we know those people existed during the campaign, that they latched onto the campaign to spread disinformation about Hillary Clinton, mostly for profit. What we know less about is whether they actually were part of the engine that defeated her. Okay. And I think, you know, as a historian, I tend to resist Automatic explanations for things because, you know, we're still learning things about the New Deal. We're still learning things about um, Abraham Lincoln's administration and what they did during the Civil War and so on. But I would say what the internet contributed to Donald Trump was to get his message to a range of people. Who were not already aware of him and were not already fans. So Donald Trump was an established media f- figure back from the 1980s. He was good at using gossip column- columns. He was used. He was good at using tabloids. He was good at using television. He would call into Larry King. Um, Donald Trump was a media sponge. He never met a medium that he did not like. And of course, Donald Trump is the person who begins the rumors, um, or who who broadcasts the rumors about Obama not being an American citizen. He goes on The View, which is this women's television program, and says, "You well, I got a lot of questions about whether this guy was really born in the United States. I mean, no one's ever seen his birth certificate. And Whoopi Goldberg just goes berserk on him. And he's like, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah." But, you know, have you seen his birth certificate? I haven't seen his birth certificate. All he has to do is show me his birth certificate. And this is really where the birther conspiracy is born. So, so Donald Trump learns very, very early that you can spread a certain narrative on the internet. You want to call it a conspiracy theory? Call it a conspiracy theory. You want to call it a lie? call it a lie, that you can take information and you can just twist it a little bit the way a gossip columnist was, it would do it and present a whole different story. Okay, And so when he starts to use Twitter, a lot of his tweets are really, really boring. They're like, you know, I will be on this show at 11 o'clock at night, tune in. Um, But when he starts to really seriously decide to run for president, all of a sudden, we begin to see tweets about Obama's birth certificate. We see, and you know, then when Hillary Clinton declares, you know, well, let's talk about the Clintons and let's talk about um, the Whitewater real estate scandal back in the 1990s. Let's talk about Monica Lewinsky. So he revives all of these, inf- all of these stories, unpleasant and unhappy stories from the 1990s and attaches them to Hillary Clinton. Um, And so to that extent, Trump was able to very effectively use Facebook and Twitter to sow doubt about Hillary Clinton's integrity, largely without evidence, and to activate certain kinds of conspiracies that had been lurking for several decades about the Clintons, um, to activate those and make them general knowledge.
1: Right, and so what? Uh, now we, there's so much more that we could talk about, but we are uh, almost out of time. So the last question: This is an easy one. <laughs> uh, what is your takeaway from the long, you know, and 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 uh, engrossing story that you tell in your book, in terms of moving forward and the sort of hope for American democracy?
0: Right. So I think first of all, all media need to be accountable for their accuracy media sometimes make mistakes they sometimes jump to conclusions Um, you know the um the um uh, the scandal years ago about the young catholic kids from covington high school in in kentucky you know, when journalists seized on that story, basically a doctored video that did not tell the whole story of what those young conservative men were doing while they were waiting for their bus to leave the pro-choice march that day. Um, that was a really good example of journalists seizing a story and running with it when they didn't actually know anything about it and didn't bother to investigate it. And I think it was a it's a real come-to-Jesus moment um, for some of these journalists when they got very seriously sued um, by a range of players, including the young man whose reputation was destroyed. But I think all media needs to be held to account. Currently, Dominion Voting Systems is suing Fox News because Fox News spread the misinformation that Dominion's voting machines were complicit in overturning the 2022 election, uh, or the 2020 election, excuse me, um, and giving it to um, Joe Biden. Um, And Dominion is showing that um, a range of players were not only spreading this lie over the Internet, but Fox News and Fox News's hosts who knew that it was a lie and they spread it anyway. Why did they spread it? For profit. And so one of the things I think we need to think about more seriously in this country is decoupling journalism from the profit mo- motive. How that works, I do not yet know. Um, but. Part of what um, drives political disinformation is money, Um, clicks. Um, If it isn't ads that are being sold, if it isn't cable fees, um, such as the cable fees that Fox News actually depends on to stay alive, you know, whether you watch Fox News or not, you're paying for it if you have a cable package, right? Um, And so um, decoupling... um, the profit motive from news has to be something we think about seriously. What's also true is that as political media moved onto the internet, what it became subject to was a law that was passed in 1996 that means that internet platforms cannot be sued because of the content that is on them. And this is actually very serious. It means you actually can sue Fox News for libel. But you can't sue Facebook for spreading the same libelous material, okay? And this is something that both conservatives and liberals really want to take a look at. And conservatives and liberals, in different ways but sometimes in similar ways, um, are interested in breaking the power of monopoly on the internet. And this is, this is something that would also improve our political life. If, in fact, there weren't such huge information engines, then there wouldn't be such huge disinformation engines either. And so breaking apart these big companies like Facebook, for example, which owns WhatsApp, it owns, um, uh, they're called Meta now. So Meta, the company, owns Facebook, WhatsApp, and Instagram. Those those are three of the most popular programs in the world, right? And Facebook has done these things where there are countries where they give away free phones that have all of these apps on them to get people to sign up as users. And it, it has had terrible effects, not just in the United States, um, but it it is believed to have um, driven the massacre of Rohingya in Myanmar. Um, you know, so so you can actually launch genocide on social media. It's not just an American... Political problem. It is a problem for spreading disinformation, fear, and violence around the globe. Um, so, so there really need to be government interventions. I believe very, very strongly in free speech. I don't believe in the right to lie. I don't believe in the right to libel people. And in fact, there are robust Supreme Court decisions in the United States that would say that the right to lie is not covered under the First Amendment. The right to spread hate speech is not covered under the First Amendment. We all know it is settled law, for example, that the right to broadcast child pornography is not covered under the First Amendment. (laughs) You know, so if there is demonstrable harm um, being done, either to individuals, to a class of people, or to our political system, the government has to step in and regulate it.
1: All right. Well, oh, thank you. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today.
0: Salman, thanks so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it.
1: That concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.